you have any courage, you'll sit in the front row and see if you get a little spirit, like a little anointing that comes from my mouth this morning. We can rub it in a little bit. Uh, that's what my youth pastor used to tell me when he would spit in my face. He'd say, rub it in. That's the anointing. And I would say, it doesn't seem like it, but I'll take your word. You remember that, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you remember. Thank you guys for being so accommodating and making room. There was a middle-aged woman who needed a break uh, from the intellectual intensity of her work. So she got up from her desk and she made her way down the newly carpeted hallway and approached the water fountain uh, as she had developed quite a dry mouth and just needed some refreshment. So as she approaches this water fountain, she comes to realize that as she's leaning over the water fountain and the water is uh, streaming out, that her golden cross necklace is dangling over and going right into the way of the stream. And so wanting to protect that and also uh, get a drink of water, she takes her right hand and she grabs it and she keeps it from that stream. And as she's drinking the water, uh, she hears in the background a hostily toned voice say, I don't know why you wear that. Jesus never really existed. A shocking word we uh, may hear this morning. It may come as a surprise to us. And maybe not. Because this really reveals to us uh, one of many popular opinions about the identity of Jesus Christ. This particular view would see Jesus as an ahistorical myth. And from this point of view, all such New Testament references uh, to his time here on earth are just a collection of mystical retellings or mythical retellings of a man who never really existed at all. Recent generations increasingly hold this view. Others, a little less radical, see Jesus as someone who did exist, but limit his identity to simply a moral teacher or philosopher. Right? Someone who came, who lived, who taught, specific ethical teachings, who did some nice things, but in the end, he died just like every one of us, a mere teacher, moral philosopher. And in this pluralistic society, we're in tune now with the reality that many people just think that Jesus is just one option at the religious buffet table, uh, uh, that you can just take your pick, uh, him or anything else, because really, any truth claim is valid. It's just, take your pick. Jesus is one of those picks. Uh, and, uh, of course, I think in recent day, uh, it would be ignorant and almost show that we're clueless uh, that many people are reducing the identity of Jesus Christ down to him being a social justice advocate that came to simply set people free from oppression. That's what we see today in our world. 
But the question we're throwing out there today, and oftentimes in this new series, is this. Who is Jesus? Really? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Really? As we begin the Gospel of Matthew today, this new series that will end sometime before I retire... This becomes the dominant question that we are going to be asking today. It's the dominant theme of the text. The author wants to tell us something important about the identity of Jesus. Let me say it differently. The author wants you to know who Jesus really is. That's what he wants. Just like all the gospel writers when they write. They write... Because they want you to know the Jesus that they know. Who he really is. What he taught. What he did for real. And the significance, the very real significance of what he did. His death, his accomplishment. To bring a deep level of clarity to a confused world that's all over the place. About the answer to the question, who is Jesus, really? Do you know Jesus, really? I trust that this series, this sermon, this word, will will deepen your understanding. Will expand it. But more so, deepen your joy, your knowledge, your appreciation of the unique identity of Jesus Christ. Guys, let's grab our Bibles. Let's dig into Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. And yes, I am going to read all of these names. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, 
the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eli, Eliakim. That was a tough one. Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azar. And Azar, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Matthun. And Matthun, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. All God's people said, amen, amen. Wow. 47 unique names in verses 2 through 16. Verse 17 tells us that there are 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. What in the world is going on here? What is this all about, this genealogy? I mean, is this really a way to kick off a new sermon series? Shouldn't we skip the genealogy like we always do in our devos in First Chronicles? <laughs> no, nah, man, I read those nine straight dates. <laughs> Could you imagine? I'm kidding. Yes, this is something that we must read because even here, in the midst of these names, in the midst of this lineage, we see a distinct lineage that is pointing us to a unique identity that Jesus has. And these genealogies functioned in a way to point to someone's identity, right? Origin, where we come from, speaks to our identity, right? When I say I'm from Syracuse, that says a lot about who I am, right? When I say I'm Maisie, That says a lot about who I am, right? Origin, family, speaks to identity. It's very important for for this uh, to be communicated. So we see this distinct lineage of all these names that root the identity of Jesus as well in human history, in family, right? Already uh, he's taking away the myth of Christ. It is Jesus' identity is rooted in real people's lives. And so we see this distinct lineage of Jesus is highlighting his unique identity. And we see the emphasis of all these names 
and how they tie together in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And really what we see over the next uh, 16 verses is a reinforcing and evidencing of that statement. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And so in many ways, the opening verse really cuts to the chase about what Matthew is saying about Jesus. And those words, Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, were massively significant terms when it came to the Jewish reader. And maybe today we can have a deeper understanding of, the, uh, of what those words really mean so we can deepen our understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. The Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is the significance of that? Well, first of all, we're going to start with David. First of all, as the son of David, Jesus is the one established by God as the eternal king. I'll say that again. As the son of David, Jesus is the one established by God as the eternal king. How do we know this? Well, as the son of David, we go back to the story of David, and we see a very specific promise that God makes to David, a covenant that he makes with David about one of his sons, right? David, the story says that David, in all of his spiritual chutzpah, says, you know what, I'm going to do something great for God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a house for God. And everyone's like, woo! Even Nathan says, what the Lord's put on your heart, go for it. But then in the middle of the night, the Lord appears to Nathan and says these words, and I'm just going to read a few verses of what I believe is like 8 or 9 in 2 Samuel 7. This is what Nathan says to, I'm sorry, what God says to Nathan to tell David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's what's going to happen. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's Listen to this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There it is. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Repeated word, here it comes. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes a promise to David that one of his sons, his offspring, would be raised up and that he would build a house for him. And he would raise up one of his sons to be the eternal king. And so what we're seeing here is that when Matthew opens up and tells us that Jesus is the son of David, he's saying, listen readers, God has been faithful to his covenant promise to establish a king. That's Jesus. As the son of David, Jesus is the one that is established by God as the eternal king. 
So that's what's happening here. That in the coming of Jesus is the coming of the great long-awaited promised king, the son of David, who would rule eternally. That's what Matthew was saying about Jesus. And that comes to us a little bit out of touch with our world that we live in because uh, we may watch The Crown and Victoria. Uh, The reality is we're a democracy, aren't we? And America is a democracy. And I enjoy much of the privileges of being an American. I love our country. Okay, I'm just going to say it. (gasps) Did I say a political statement? Oh, no. I love America. It's great. Grateful for it. Don't love everything about it, but I'm grateful for it. But understand this. We enjoy a democracy in America in terms of the nation in which we live, but the universe is not a democracy. The universe is ruled by a king. An eternal one established by God. And his name is Jesus. And he is reigning now eternally. And upon the victory that he secured over death in his resurrection, he was vindicated, he was raised, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. That's Jesus. He's the son of David. And as the son of David, he is the one established by God as the eternal king. How do we respond to such a king? Well, we're like, well, we vote, right? No. We bow and we submit. We obey joyfully. Because when our king comes back into town, he comes back victorious on behalf of his people. And we bow with a celebrative approach and posture toward him. That's King Jesus, son of David, eternal king of heaven and earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Not only is he the son of David, but we're told that he is the son of Abraham. And what is the significance of this? I'm going to just tell you, okay? As the son of Abraham, Jesus is the one source of God's saving blessing for the world. Well, geez, where'd you come up with that? Well, again, we got to go back. We got to go back OT, old school. We got to dig in to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, where God is choosing Abram and bringing him out, and he is communicating with him and establishing a covenant with him as well. So we have a covenant with David, and here we have a covenant with Abraham. And this is what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, he says. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blessed you and and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Listen to this phrase. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you, through your offspring. Genesis 17, 7 and 8 says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for what? An everlasting covenant to be God to you 
and to your offspring after you. So God is promising to Abraham that through his offspring, he is going to bless the world. Yes, he's choosing one, Abraham. He's choosing the nation Israel, right, as his own people. He's bringing them to himself. But why? So that through them, through the offspring of this people, the world, every man, woman, and child, all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations would what? Be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. It's Psalm 67. May all the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. It's a covenant hope based on a covenant promise that God made to Abraham. And so when, G- when, when Matthew is saying in these op- this opening verse that Jesus is Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's telling the reader, this is the one source. Jesus is the one source of all of God's saving blessing for the world. Jesus. So God is, again, showing himself to be faithful to his covenant, faithfulness of God. He makes a promise, he keeps it. We can count on his word in history to manifest itself perfectly in purpose. His outworking of his plan, here it is, Jesus. He is here, the source of all of God's saving blessing for the world. This is such Wonderful news for you and me. I assume most, if not all of us, are not of Jewish heritage here. We're Gentiles. This is saying that that God made a promise to bless the world, to save a people out of the world. And now it is through the person and work of Jesus that that blessing is secured and provided in his coming. That's who he is. Every man, woman, and child. The king is eternal, yes. But we see as well that the king is universal. Lord of heaven and earth. All creation. Right? And I'm not talking about universalism here, where everybody's saved. That's not what I said. I'm talking about there is no uh, ethnicity, there's no language, there's no nation, there's no life that is not under the umbrella of the reign of Jesus and not too far away from the saving grace and blessing of Jesus because he is the universal king. He is the one source for all people. That includes me. That includes you. This is wonderful news for the world that Jesus is the one source of all of God's saving blessing. Now understand this, we must not forget how Jesus secured for us such blessing. We alluded to it and read of it really in the assurance of pardon. On what basis can God bless a sinful, rebellious, idolatrous world? On what basis can blessing come to us? On the basis of this fact, This historic reality that we'll talk about in like three years. This historic reality that Jesus Christ came into human history. That took upon himself a perfect sinless life. And then endured a horrific death. 
a gruesome sorrow. What Galatians calls a curse. Right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And so while we celebrate blessing, understand the basis of such celebration goes right to that symbol right there that we put right front and center as the most significant symbol that defines our faith, that Jesus died in our place on the cross, that in that moment he received all of the cursing that our sin deserved so that we might receive all of the blessing that only he can give. This is the central understanding of what is good about the news in the scriptures. That Jesus died. That he became a curse. That we might be blessed. Amen? Amen. It's not about what you can do for God. It's not about conjuring up merit and good works. It's about what God has done for you in Christ. Taking upon all your sin and your sorrow. All the forsakenness. All the judgment all the cursing, and now you receive through His blood the blessing of God to be saved from all of that. Jesus, Son of Abraham, the one source of all of God's saving blessing. Not only is He the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, but He is also the Christ. I'm going to tell you the significance of that. In short form, let me tell you. As the Christ, Jesus is the one anointed by God. Keyword, anointed. He's the one anointed by God and set apart for his purposes. Right? The idea of being anointed. The anointed one. That's what that word uh, Christ means. It means to be anointed. It goes back to the Old school, again, Old Testament. Where kings and priests, even things, were anointed. Were set apart as unique. Set apart for God's purposes. Separated out. A distinction is made. You're not like the other things. You're not like the other people. You're not like the other kings of the earth. You are anointed by me, set apart for me. And there were rituals that came with this, where Aaron was anointed in Exodus chapter 40 as high priest. Saul is anointed as king in 1 Samuel 10. David was anointed as king in 2 Samuel 5 as well. And we also see in the Psalms, A song that refers to the Lord and His anointed one. Which really became a way to uh, um, provide expectation and anticipation for the Messiah. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah. Psalm chapter 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And later on, verse 6, God says this, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The anointed 
one whom the kings have set themselves against. The anointed one of the Lord is his king that he set on Zion, his holy hill. This understanding of the Messiah, this anointed one, shaped the hope and the sense of future that the people of Israel had. Of course, this sense of hope was was based on uh, their understanding that this would be basically a savior king that would come, especially during the time that, that, that Jesus was alive, and just simply set them free from Rome. Right? Like, come in, horse, sword, win the battle, Rome's gone, reestablish uh, Israel as a national glory and superpower. Right? But this shaped their understanding of a coming Messiah a coming anointed one that would be set apart for God and anointed by God. And so what Matthew was saying is, uh, no matter where your expectations are in that, O Israel, here's this, Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one that is set apart to bring about his saving purposes. And of course, we're going to see that, that throughout the uh, the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, there's uh, uh, some reception of him as Messiah, and yet much hostility and conflict uh, as well, that there's opposition. Not sure who this guy thinks he is. Is he the one that was to come? John the Baptist, are you the one? Because our expectations were this, and we're seeing that, and they're not necessarily coinciding We're seeing a little bit, but not the totality. And in the end, we know that he was rejected as king of the Jews. But Matthew's saying, Christ, Jesus, is the anointed one. And as you look at this list of of names here, there may be some other things that you'll notice, maybe some memories of certain characters throughout the Old Testament, like kings and certain situations where you scratch your head like, that dude's in Jesus' family? Really? Can't we, uh, can't we do a scribal edit on that one? You know, can we make a few changes? So what's interesting is that while we see this distinct lineage is, is highlighting for us a unique identity that only he has as the Christ, the the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's more to be seen here that that you may not notice through these list of names, but if uh, the Jewish reader was looking at this uh, 1,900 years ago or so, there would be some things that they would immediately notice. Yes, son of David, son of Abraham, yep, that makes sense. That's in keeping with our expectations. But there's some things here that, that, that also adjust our expectations. And throughout the gospel that we preach the next few years, I think, I'm assuming there's going to be some adjustment in your understanding and your expectation about the identity of Jesus. It's going to grow. It's going to expand. It's going to change. It's going to shift. It's going to deepen. That's what we pray. That's why we're doing this. It's what God wants to do through his word. So I think you'll see a fulfilling and reinforcing of these things, but also adjustments and growth that takes place in your understanding of the identity, the teaching, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we see even in this lineage. That 
not only a unique identity, but his distinct lineage here is highlighting God's providential grace. You read this, you can't help but think, how are these people included in this? It's got to be providential grace. It's got to be sovereign grace at work making this happen. This doesn't happen by accident. This group of people to come up with the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This, this list of people highlights providential grace. God is at work, faithfully keeping his covenant, making these circumstances and these parental kid relationships all just kind of work. That's what he's doing. So he's highlighting providential grace as he's keeping promises in a way that's both fulfilling and adjusting our expectations. Son of David, son of Abraham, check. Amen. Evil kings, hmm. Idolatry in his past, mm, that seems jacked up. Women? Women don't go in genealogies. No. Five women. Tamar. Rahab. Ruth. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And of course, Mary. We just, whoop, dropping them in. Whoop, whoop. What's going on there? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Gentiles, too? Uh, Tamar, probably a Canaanite. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Ruth, the Moabite. Hmm. The wife of Uriah, the Hittite? What's going on? We've got some jacked up people. We've got women. Right? Included. It's not typical. Gentiles? Providential grace. Right? Many people would point out the scandalous nature of some of the circumstances surrounding some of these men and women. Even Mary. Right? Joseph thought she had committed adultery. We're going to see. What's God doing? What's Matthew saying? He's saying God's being faithful to keep his covenant even in the midst of chaos. Even in the midst of circumstances that aren't pretty and perfect. He's working out his plan. He's including uh, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles. Right? Son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. Blessing for the world. Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites. That's what we read when we see this. Shows God's power in his faithfulness. Shows God's grace in inclusion of people that don't belong in the line of the living God. To be associated and included in the family and the lineage of the living God. Our lives are just a microcosm of this, isn't it? This is macro, this text, but our lives are a microcosm of that, isn't it? How, could, how can God 
carry out what he's done in our own lives, right? God's grace, his power to take all of our struggles, our suffering, even the midst of our failures, and even in the midst of our sin. He's working out his plan. He's including the undeserved sinner made saint into his family, weaving them in, including them, adopting them, saying, you're mine. No, you don't deserve it, but you're mine. Yeah, I know your life's jacked up, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take care of that. That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing in Christ. He's including people that don't belong, that deserve judgment, that deserve shame, that deserve to be excluded from his family. He's adopting them in, saying, you're mine. That's what God's doing. Providential grace, saying, you're mine. Come to me. And I'll make you who you are. God is working out all things for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All our sins and struggles he's redeeming and he's making up for. All of our jacked up past and experiences, all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. God is just saying, I can deal with that. And I can make it good. I can bring about my glory in your life. Through Jesus, providential grace, fulfilling expectations, son of David, son of Abraham, adjusting. It's not what you expect completely, Israel. And I wonder if some of you even here today think you got it all figured out, this Jesus thing. Yeah, I've been a Christian for like 30 years, man. I've been going to church my whole life. Yep, mm-hmm. Got it all figured. Already did that study on Ephesians. Don't need to do that again. Figured it all out. Jesus is going to mess with that. Holy Spirit is going to mess with that in Matthew. Adjust. You heard that it was said, but I say to you, Sermon on the Mount. Adjust. So who is Jesus, really? Who is he? A historical myth? Moral teacher? Philosopher, example, just one of the options at the religious buffet table. Who is Jesus? Social justice advocate? Is that who Jesus is? Read in the text that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one anointed by God and set apart for his purposes. That's who Jesus really is. Read in the text that Jesus is the son of David. Right? The long-awaited king. Eternal king established by God. Read that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the one source of all of God's saving blessing for the world. That's who Jesus really is, according to the Bible. Who is Jesus? Why does that question matter? Why do you keep asking that? What's the big deal about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Thanks. Tomorrow's Monday, back to work. Why does this matter? It matters because his identity has everything to say to our own. Our understanding of who Christ is has eternal impact on who we are. 
There's nothing more significant than answering and asking and answering that question, who is Jesus, and having a right understanding of it. Because understanding his identity deeply impacts our own identity. If he's eternal king, if he's universal king, man, who he is really matters to who we are. My oldest daughter, Evelyn, gave me permission to share this, but she was given an assignment first day of school. I might get an amen on this. Kids are back to school. Okay. Um, First day of school, got an assignment from her Bible teacher. I want you to go home and write, was it 250 words? She goes, she's not here? She's a kid. 250 words. Answer the question, who am I? Answer the question, who am I? Here's what she said, at least at one point. So who really am I, you ask? I define myself as a child of God. He defines me and who I am, who I was, and who I will become to be in the future. His identity defines yours. The unique identity of Jesus has uniquely defined her identity. She's heard, she's seen, she's embraced. And now her whole person, her whole identity is transformed. So how you answer that question, who is Jesus, brings eternal definition to the question, who am I? His identity defines your identity. Because of his unique identity, everything about him defines everything under him. There's no escaping of that. That's the significance of who he is. And the wonderful thing that we read in Galatians 3, think about son of David, son of Abraham. His identity influencing ours is this wonderful promise that, again, not just these names in the lineage, but, but our names included, grafted in, weaved in to the lineage of Jesus, to the family of God. Galatians 3 says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You are all sons of God. Through faith. Through faith. Proper response to identity necessary. Through faith, trust, reliance, total trust, faith, and reliance. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I'm sorry. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, check this then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Son of Abraham, you all in Christ grafted in through faith, included. Yeah, you don't belong there. You don't deserve it, right? It's, it's, it, 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 you deserve the opposite. You deserve judgment and exclusion, cast aside, shame, 
But because of the blood of Jesus, because of his identity and his work, he, he adopts you, he brings you through his providential grace, just brings you into relationship with him through faith. And you're in his family. You're in. You're included. A joyful, wonderful reality to embrace. And you realize that a cross hanging on a neck at a water fountain is never meant to be reduced to a symbol of some guy that never existed, but really an identity marker that says, my life is his. My, his death is mine. Union with him. So when we wear that cross, it's no fashion statement. It's no fable. It is our identity. It explains to everyone the reality of Jesus, and by implication and application, it tells everyone who we are in him, included through his death and resurrection. Amen? The distinct identity, uh, I'm sorry, the distinct lineage of Jesus, it highlights his unique identity. And we're just getting started. This is just a genealogy. Wait till some guy stretches out his hand and it's like reappears. Then we're going to see some, I mean, this is going to be fabulous. I'm really excited. I'm glad you guys are going to be a part of it. And really the hope is that everyone will encounter the Jesus who really is. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we praise you for this word. We're grateful for the, for the specificity and the precision in which Matthew writes and the historical validity of what he writes. But really, all the more, we're grateful for how that highlights for us his unique identity. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised son of David. Jesus is indeed the promised son of Abraham. May we see him for all that he is here today. May we celebrate him as victorious over all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And may our, our expectations be adjusted. May our eyes be opened, our ears be opened to see and hear who Jesus is in all of his glory. Save us, O God. Show us, O God. Move mightily in our hearts through this uh, series and through the preaching of the word. If there's anybody here today who has made a commitment to Jesus Christ uh, as they've heard this or, or has questions about it, I pray that just your spirit would just continue to move in them and uh, just draw them to yourself, include them in your family. God, we praise you and thank you for this word in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Descended 
took on flesh to ransom life.